Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk about a topic that I have to admit sometimes makes me a little ah, a little crazy. We're going to talk about vaginal exams. Now, I often say your cervix is not a crystal ball. It is not going to tell you when labor is going to start. And something that I see time and time again, students will come into class super excited that they're walking around a little dilated or even discouraged and deflated if they're not. So my guest is going to talk about the information we get from vaginal exams. How does that help you make decisions? And are they even necessary before the onset of labor? When you may want to consider getting one in a hospital setting, at a home birth setting, how are they going to help looking at the big picture of your birth? So to have this conversation, I have Kara French. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She's been a registered nurse since 2006 and became a midwife in 2014. She spent her midwifery career working in both private practice as well as a large hospital setting. She is currently in private practice attending home births and hospital births, as well as seeing patients for complete GYN care. So what I love about Kara's perspective is she can give the perspective of how she would do something protocols in a home birth and how she would do it in a hospital birth. So no matter which camp you relate to, you can get some really useful information from this conversation. I'm so passionate about this topic. I know it's a strange topic to be passionate about, but I truly am. So before we get to my conversation with Kara, I always like to give some updates about what's happening at Prenatal Yoga Center. So we continue with our online classes seven days a week. We have in-studio classes six days a week. We've got wonderful workshops. Kara actually teaches one of them. She teaches the childbirth education class. And then we have corresponding on-demand classes. So no matter where you are, you can participate in our classes in some manner, be part of our community. So that's really exciting. Another thing we have going on is our teacher training. So we do it three times a year online because I love the fact that we can work with people from all corners of the world. And then once a year, we do it in New York City. It's a two weekend intensive. And then every spring, we've got our postnatal teacher training. So if you're a yoga teacher out there and you really want to take a deep dive into the material that we cover in the podcast, in our classes. Check out our website for all that information, prenatalyogacenter.com. The last thing I want to say, as always, is a big thank you for listening. And I like to ask a little favor here. If you haven't left a rating or review, I would love if you could do that. It helps people find us. But again, thanks for being part of our community. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hi, Kara. How are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you? I'm full disclosure. If people are like, what is wrong with my voice? That is because I've got a cold. So I apologize if it sounds like I'm talking through stuffing. Um, but no, besides actually, that, I'm good. Sound, no, you sound great. You sound oh. great. I, I never would have known you were sick. 
<laughs> oh, that is the that is the joy of Dayquil and Nyquil. Yay. All right. So <laughs> thank you for coming on because as we talked about before we pressed record. I personally have a little bit of a beef with a lot of vaginal exams, especially before the onset of labor, because as I often say to my students, your cervix is not a crystal ball. So I'm so excited from your perspective as a midwife to talk about vaginal exams when we want them, maybe when we want to pass up on them, what they mean. So thank you for... <laughs> just supporting my agenda, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, actually, I we are absolutely on the same page. And I tell my my patients, um, as well as when I teach classes, I'm like, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, we'll just so, keep diving down there. So I guess before yeah. I get into that conversation, I would love to learn a little bit more about you and what led you to midwifery. Yes. Okay. So I actually used to be a professional uh, modern dancer uh, here in the city. And um, it was, you know, I was doing the starving artist thing and dancing all over the place and teaching. And it was a little hard to pay the bills. And so I was working a nine to five that I was not real thrilled with and feeling like, okay, this is just, you know, I'm just making somebody else rich, um, here, you know? Um, and so I was really trying to figure out what else can I do? And it took me a little while, but I remembered that years ago when I was a kid, I was always fascinated with birth and just the reproductive system and how everything, you know, works. Um, I, to the point where when I was about 11 or 12 and I saw on PBS, they were advertising the, um, the VHS. So I'm dating myself, the VHS tape of, um, a miracle of life asking my parents to buy it for me so I could see it. And I was just fascinated. And I had thought when I was in high school, um, actually about going pre-med, uh, but knew that I really wanted to dance and that dance had a shelf life and I could always go back to school. So when I was doing the starving artist thing and working a nine to five that I did not enjoy, um, I kind of remembered like, oh yeah, I actually was really interested in birth. So I started looking into pre-med, doing some prerequisites. I already had a bachelor's degree in art, so I knew that I would have to go back to school. Um, and I spoke to my husband's cousin who actually was um, a nurse manager at one of the major uh, New York City hospitals of the, in the ICU. And I said, told her what I was thinking about doing. And she says, no, you don't want to do that. Um, you don't want to do pre-med. And I said, well, why not? And she says, well, because you have to do your prerequisites and then you'll have your four years of med school and then four years of residency, you know, before you can actually do anything. And she says, you're still dancing. You still want to have a life. She says, you won't be happy. She says, you want to become a nurse. And then you want to become a midwife. And I said, I do. And she said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what you want to do. Go do some research. So I did a little research and I was like, yeah, that's actually what I want to do. I, I didn't really know anything about midwives. Um, I knew that I had been told years ago when I was in college and went to Planned Parenthood that the practitioner that I saw was like, when you decide to have kids, you want, you need a midwife. I was like, oh, okay. But I didn't know, again, you know, that was college. Who was thinking about that? I had no idea what that was. So anyway, long story short, I decided to go back to school. I became a nurse um, and I worked in uh, labor and delivery. I worked at a birthing center um, and really got to see all aspects of, of labor and birth. And then after um, working, you know, for about five years in labor and delivery, 
I became the assistant nurse manager of the mother baby unit uh, while I went back to school for midwifery. And so now I've been a midwife now for coming up on, it'll next year will be 10 years. So about nine and a half years. Wow. Wow. I love that journey. And I can relate to that. I was also a musical theater singer dancer. So, and I okay. thought very briefly about midwifery, <laughs> mainly because <laughs> as I was a doula and I had a very precipitous birth where <laughs> I ended up the nine one, we called nine one one. The you know EMT was coming, but I was there, and I was like catching a baby. I'm like, wow! And then yeah. I thought, no, 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 no. I'll just stick to supporting. Um, <laughs> 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 like a lot of responsibility, but I really do appreciate your story. I know a lot of folks in the kind of creative world do end up in the birth world, but I appreciate your whole journey. So, all right, let's use that knowledge as a midwife <laughs> and talk <laughs> about vaginal exams. So, again. I guess since we're going to talk about vaginal exams, let's start with the very basics. What are vaginal exams exactly? And what are they used to determine? Because a lot of folks don't know exactly what's happening when someone heads up their vagina. <laughs> yes. So basically it is a digital exam meeting. We use uh, two fingers internally to measure the, uh, to see if the cervix is open. So measure the, that's dilation as well as to see if the cervix has softened and shortened, which is what's called effacement. And then the third thing that we are uh, looking for is to see where the baby's head is, and that's the station. So in relation to the mom's pelvis, where baby's head is. I love that you're talking about that, the other two, because I feel like dilation is often the star, and that effacement and station tend to get neglected. But I think they're really important too. Will you talk a little bit about how they all work together? Yes. So especially with first baby, um, the cervix has to soften uh, and shorten before it actually opens, right? So it has to efface. So there's a you know a lot of process uh, that's going on there. It's said three things at once. Baby's head is coming down into the pelvis, which is putting pressure on the cervix which then in turn stimulates more prostaglandins to help to soften the cervix so that it softens and thins and eventually recedes into the uterine wall. So dilation is the actual opening, and that's the opening that's caused as the cervix is receding into the uh, uterine wall. Yeah, and then we also talk about station because that plays an important role too, is like where that baby's head is. (laughs) Right, Right. So yeah, so with station, I mean, basically if baby's head is at the um, pubic bone, that is considered zero station. Anything above is called minus. Anything below is called plus. Um, So many, you know, many patients will come in and they're active labor. And so they'll hear, you know, their provider say, you know, five, 80% of face to minus one. And that means that, okay, the cervix has thinned out to the point of about the thickness of your lip. If you pinch your lip, that's about 80% effaced and is five centimeters, you know, open. And the head is um, essentially like one centimeter above the, the pubic bone. Yeah. And what I appreciate about kind of going over all that is I think sometimes we focus so much on dilation and people during the progress of labor only focus on dilation, but effacement's really important too, and station's really important too. So I guess this is more of a reminder for folks listening to maybe let go of that 
dilation a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, is, I mean, it, it tells us they're all tools, but you can't have one without, without the others, you know, mm-hmm. or, or rather you can, but it's difficult. So is it possible for someone to be fully effaced, meaning they're, t- or rather fully dilated, they're 10 centimeters dilated, a hundred percent effaced, meaning it, the cervix is paper thin and this baby's head is at minus two. Yes, it is possible, although unlikely. You know, and if the baby's head is, you know, higher than the pubic bone, chances are they're not going to dilate as well. It means the head is not engaged well and putting the pressure on the cervix that really needs to to happen. So mm-hmm. all of those things really have to happen in order to get fully effaced, fully dilated, and to now be in a point where um, the patient feels um, pressure to push. All right, so we're going to pull back a little bit from the pushing stage and talk about mm-hmm. <laughs> the vaginal exams before the onset of labor. So let me give you a little bit of my background on this. Okay. So I've been teaching prenatal yoga for 23 years. So I've been hearing you know, a fair amount of people talk about this. And I would have students coming in really upset that they just had an exam and they're Close tight. And then I've had students come in and say, Oh my God, I'm two centimeters any day now. And then I see them the next day and they're like, Okay, I'm still here. And then like a week later, like, Why am I still here? So (laughs) they're either discouraged or they're over anxious and then they're discouraged again. And I remember my 38th week, I, I had a very fortunate experience and I had a home birth midwife, but I also had an OB as a backup. And he said at 38 weeks, I just had to go see him. So I walked in ready to be like, you are not going up there. And he's like, I'm not because he's like, it tells me nothing. And I was so excited by that. So Mm -hmm. that's my theory on that. So when might it be necessary to have one prior, have a vaginal exam prior to the onset of labor? And when can someone just say, no, thank you? So, yeah, I, I'll tell you, this is my, this is my spiel. And I say the same thing to, to my patients all and students all the time. Uh, you can be closed and snap your fingers and go into labor, mm-hmm. or you can walk around for three weeks at three centimeters. So it, like it's, so it really doesn't, matter. And I tell people all the time, because unfortunately I heard too many women say that they came to me as a provider, or even when I was a labor and delivery nurse saying things like, oh, well, I didn't know I could say no to that, which Mm. hurts my heart, you know, in so many, so many levels, because I'm like, no, 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 you are an adult, you're an autonomous person and you can decline anything. You don't have to do anything. So unless my patient comes in saying, you know, they come into the office and they say, I'm having contractions. I, you know, I think that labor is starting, you know, can you check my cervix and see if there's been any change? I generally do not do any exams in the office at all, you know, because again, it just tell, doesn't tell me anything unless there are other things that are going on. So I say patients can, can decline, all the time. You know, I hate the word refuse, you know, although, but you know, you can, you can say, no, I'm good. (laughs) You know, I don't want to do that. Um, and you know, only if really you are, you know, really contracting, you think that you're in labor or you know that you are in labor, um, it's really unnecessary. Now, if someone is 41 weeks 
and we're trying to encourage labor at that point, I will then offer an exam, not so much because I really care about how dilated they are, but by doing an exam, I can do what's called a membrane sweep, which can help to encourage the release of prostaglandins, and, uh, prostaglandins which in turn encourage um, can encourage the onset of labor if the body is is ready. So I will offer that at around that time. Um, but again, if I've had, you know, people say, no, you know what? I don't think I want to do that. Okay. No problem. You can, can you explain what happens with a membrane sweep because I feel like so many people are going to hear that offer. And I know a lot of folks that don't want to go for like a full medical induction may want to start with mm-hmm. that because it's less intervention. Yes. Yes. So I think it's a great way to start if we're just trying to stimulate spontaneous labor, right? So it can only be done if the cervix is a little bit open. If the cervix is closed, there's no dilation, then I can't do it because what I'm trying to do is insert my finger through the cervix and in a sweeping motion with my finger, like like if you think about, I guess, like going around a clock, uh, I'm trying to separate the amniotic sac from the cervix. And that in turn releases some prostaglandins, which can in turn start contractions and then therefore start the labor process. And usually if it's going to work, because sometimes the body's just not ready, but if it's going to work generally within 24 to 48 hours, something will start. Well, that's great. So, all right, listeners, put that in your back pocket. (laughs) Someone's like, okay, we got (laughs) to induce. That is one option. So this may be a little bit of a loaded question, but why do you think some care providers routinely do vaginal exams after 36 or 37 weeks pregnant? Because they've been told that's what they have to do. And they have, don't learn that that's not something that they have to do. But what information are they getting that can help them determine the next steps? Uh, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Fair fair enough. Okay. I mean, I, I playing devil's advocate, I, you know, again, when people are taught a certain way, right, that that's just what's done, then they're like, oh, that's just what's done, you know, right? And then not, not introduced to a different way of doing things. Um, I've had one provider, uh, one doctor that I really adored say, well, I think it's good for them to get used to doing the exam because we do them in labor. I completely disagree with that. I don't, I mean, sometimes I don't even do an exam in labor, right? So I've had plenty of births where I never did an exam. Um, so I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Um, I think that the only time it really shows some benefit is if, you know, the, if the patient comes in and says, I'm having some contractions or I've been having, I'm not sure if it's early labor or Braxton Hicks, it can tell us kind of give us an idea of what the starting point is Mm -hmm. and can help maybe guide in terms of what, when we have the patient either come into the hospital or me, I do home and hospital birth. So if I'm doing home, it can, can possibly give me an idea of when I go to the patient's house. And I'm all saying this possibly because that's really not the criteria that I use. I, I really do believe that it's completely unnecessary unless the patient is, is, is contracting because even if they think they broke their water, I don't need to do an exam. I might do a speculum exam to confirm rupture if it's unclear, but I don't need to actually see if they're dilated. 
Well, that actually brings something up too about if the membranes have ruptured, don't we want to limit vaginal exams because of the introduction of bacteria? Yes, we do want to limit. Now, there are times when with rupture, we still will want to. Like, let's say, for example, someone has um, has ruptured and they have not started contracting. Now, in my mm-hmm. practice, we know is if patient is GBS, GBS negative, we will typically oh, wait explain 24 what that hours. Is in case someone's like, what is this GBS yes. thing? Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we'll backtrack. So GBS or group B strep, group beta streptococcus, all the same thing, is a normal gut bacteria that everybody has. But in about 25 to 30% of women, it makes its way out of the gut, uh, out of the gut to the vaginal tract. And it can possibly make baby sick after delivery if mom is GBS positive. And I say can possibly, it's about a 10% risk that baby will become mildly ill. And about 10% of that 10% will become severely ill. So it's a very low risk. And there are different ways of treating it. In in Europe, they treat it a little differently than we do here in the States. Um, but it can increase risk of infection. So or so if mom is or patient is GBS um, positive, then we will want to try and get labor started a little sooner if she broke her water but is not contracting. Um, and if, you know, the patient is GBS negative, then we uh, will can we usually wait a little bit longer. We're, we're a little bit more patient. So in the case that patient is GBS negative, and they've broken their water and 24 hours has gone by and labor hasn't really started, by finding out what the dilation is can help to determine what we do in order to, what kind of induction or augmentation method we use to get labor going. So it's useful, although again, yes, we want to limit it. I We don't want to do an exam every two hours. It's completely unnecessary. But having a starting exam to see where we are and how we need to proceed is, is really beneficial. Yeah. I always think of any sort of, whether it be a vaginal exam or whatever sort of interventions, if it's going to make a difference in the management of care, then it's necessary. If it's just because it's protocol, then right. maybe not as necessary, but it sounds it's, like yeah, you exactly. need to make decisions based on your findings. That makes complete sense. All right. So I'm going slightly off topic. We're going to take a quick break and then I'm going to come back going slightly off topic because I'm fascinated. I want to know what are some of the things that you might do if you need to kind of get labor going. So say maybe someone is GBS positive. You're like, okay, we need to get the show on the road. So take a quick break. Think about that. (laughs) We'll be right back. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Okay, so we're back. So let's go into the scenario. GBS positive, water broke, not really dilated. And you're like, all right, let's start the rodeo. What are some of the things that you might do? So I guess the question that I have for you, are yep. you talking about what I would do for a home birth client uh, or what is typically done in the hospital? Because those two different Can we do things. both? Can we go down yes. both roads? Okay. <laughs> yes, we can. I just like, let me, how do I tailor both my the answer? Roads. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'll start with home birth. So if, um, whether the method for home birth essentially is the same, whether they're GBS positive or negative, it's just the timing that's different. Okay. Right. So, um, so, but the method would be the same. So if, um, you know, they've been ruptured for whatever amount of time that we deem is like, okay, now it's time to start moving things along. Um, we encourage a few things. We definitely encourage going to the chiropractor to make sure that they're well aligned so that baby is in, can fit into the pelvis properly. Um, we will encourage acupuncture because that can help to, and or acupressure can help to stimulate labor. Um, we will have the patient use their breast pump and do nipple stimulation, um, 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off, 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off, and continue that for a number of hours because nipple stimulation releases oxytocin, which does many things, but one of the things that oxytocin does is cause uterine contractions. Um, we also, in our practice, we use herbs. Um, of like black and blue cohosh and pennyroyal in very specific amounts. So if someone is having a home birth, they, uh, I would definitely have them speak to their um, home birth midwife about that. Um, and we also use castor oil sometimes as well to stimulate um, labor. And usually the question I get with castor oil is someone will say, well, I heard that there's an increased risk of baby having meconium with the use of castor oil. And there was a small study years ago that did show that. But what we realized is that more often than not, castor oil is used when a um, patient is post-dates over 41 weeks. And there's a greater risk of meconium past 41 weeks anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was a, um, what's the word? It was uh, not coincidental. It was uh, not causation. Uh, can you help me out? You know what the word I'm looking well, yeah. for? <laughs> it's kind of like a wash though, because we don't know which is the, what caused right. what. Yeah. Right. We don't know. Right. So, you know, chances are they might have meconium anyway, because they're post-dates. I mean, that's not a guarantee. There are plenty of patients that go post-dates that do not have meconium, but it is a higher risk, a slightly higher risk once you go post-dates. So, so we use um, castor oil in a measured amount um, at home. Uh, along with, you said, you know, nipple stimulation, we do um, uh, spinning babies, exercises, um, different things to help make sure that, you know, the baby is aligned well into the, can descend into the pelvis, because sometimes that's what's holding labor up, yep. is that, you know, the baby is not descending properly, maybe the position is not so great, the head is a little cocked to the side, so just by doing some different um, movement techniques, we can get uh, baby into a good position, which will in turn put pressure on that cervix and cause, you know, contractions. Um, so now if we do all of those things at home and that's not working, then at that point we'd say, okay, we need to go into the hospital. Or if the patient is a, you know, planned hospital birth, um, you know, we would still wait and give some time because we know that the vast majority of women will go into labor within 24 hours after breaking their water. Only about 10 to 15% of women break their water before labor starts. 
Um, but not like the, vet, the movies, folks. <laughs> right. It's don't know. You don't have to race. It's not what, <laughs> the floodgates open and, you know, patients screaming and <laughs> we have time, but only about 10 to 15% will break their water before labor starts. But in that 10 to 15% that do, um, generally within 24 hours, labor will start spontaneously. So now if we get to the point where we're like, okay, now we need to do something else and we need to go into the hospital, there are a couple of different ways that we can get labor started. And that depends on what the cervix is doing. So if the cervix is closed or um, less than, say, about four centimeters, then we may use what's called Cytotec, which is a uh, small little pill that can be placed uh, vaginally by the cervix or it can be dissolved under the tongue or in the cheek. Uh, it's given every four hours and can be given every four hours up to 24 hours. And essentially, it m- helps to mimic early labor, to get early labor started. And then once you know the patient is about four centimeters, or if they come in and they're about four centimeters, at that point, the next step would be Pitocin, which is given through the IV. Um, and Pitocin gives a bad rap. Um, and I think that's because years ago there were not people, there were no protocols, so it was not used properly. <laughs> Although now I think it's, you know, it's very, it's really the only thing that we have kind of past that four or five centimeter mark. Um, but when used properly is very effective, um, and very safe. So it goes through the IV, it's on a drip, it's started at a very low dose, um, and then slowly titrate it up every 30 minutes until the patient is contracting um, approximately every two to three minutes consistently. And then it's left at that level as opposed to going, you know, beyond. This so. is great. So I love that people can hear the different options of things. Do you ever, again, it's totally off topic, but do you ever use a Foley balloon? I do, but generally not with ruptured patients. Oh, of course. Of course, ruptured. That's what we're talking about, Deb. All right, of course. Right. <laughs> I love the full balloon. I love the full balloon. Yes, we don't Use want foreign in. objects up there. Pull yourself back, right. Deb, to what we're talking about. Of course. Sorry. Right. I just kind of, <laughs> where's my brain? All right. I'm going to so, blame it on the cold medicine. All right. No, so. it's fine. So, yeah, no, the Foley balloon is great. Um, and we use it, we use it at home and we use it in the hospital. It's a fantastic method when, when not ruptured and less than four centimeters. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for mm-hmm. clarifying that. All right. So, let's get back to. So now somebody is in labor, whether they're at home, whether they're in the hospital, labor started, you know, in some manner, it started ruptures, membranes are ruptured. What about how often would you recommend somebody needing a vaginal exam? Because I have seen people be like every three hours, every two hours, every four hours, it's like by the clock almost. And yeah, my question is, does that have to be the case? And if not, what, what would you recommend? So no, it does not have to be the case. Um, and again, like at home, we have a little bit more, you know, leeway. So I'll talk about home first and then I'll sure. talk about the hospital. Um, at home, uh, there have been plenty of times where I've never done an exam um, because I, our practice, we aim to get to the patient when they're in active labor and we really watch the contraction pattern as well as what the patient looks like. Mm-hmm. What they look like, what they sound like tells us a lot, right? So if I get there and, you know, the patient is moaning and, uh, and like grunting, 
then I know that late, that birth is probably going to be happen soon. And I don't really need to check to tell, tell us that. Um, now if she's doing that for a number of hours with no progress or no supposed progress, then I might suggest an exam at that point and say, you know, you kind of, seems like we're kind of in the same spot. Maybe if I do an exam, I can offer some suggestions about what the, what we can do to help move things along. Maybe I'm going to have her, you know, do stairs or lunges or lift and tucks or, you know, or different things. Um, I actually had, uh, this is over the summer. I had a, um, a home birth. It was the patient's second baby. So we were kind of expecting things to go a little fat, you know, fairly quickly. And I got there with my assistant and the doula was there and, and, um, the, the uh, patient's husband was there and she seemed to be really doing very well. I mean, she was making some sounds, she was contracting, you know, fairly consistently, maybe about every three to four minutes. Um, and then things kind of seemed to stall out or that they were still coming consistently, but didn't seem to be quite as strong. It, it just wasn't progressing in the way that we anticipated. So after, you know, a few hours, um, I suggested an exam and she was about six centimeters, which was not, not what I expected. Uh-huh. And I felt like at that point, you know what, sometimes people just need a little space. <laughs> So I said, you know what? I'm going to step out so you don't feel like the watched pot. And my assistant, we're going to step out. We're here if you need us, but we're just going to give you a little space. And maybe you and your doula can do some stairs, take a little time, you know, without feeling like I have to perform. And she did some stairs and she was really pushing about 30 minutes later and then delivered her baby. So, you know, it kind of depends on that. Or on the other side, if I, and this usually happens with first timers because they don't, you know, they've never done it before. They don't know um, what to expect exactly. And so I've gotten there and things did not seem to be as intense as they, as they said or thought. And so at that point I might say, let's, let's, it might be a good idea to do an exam again so I can tell you what to do. And then, find, oh, you're three centimeters, which is great. You've made great progress, but we're still in early labor let's try and get some rest. Let's do this. Let's do that. And then I will come back, you know, a little bit later. Um, in the hospital, uh, it is a good idea to do an exam upon admission, um, or even just triage because we need to know, do we need to admit you or do, should we send you walking or should we send you home? Right. So that would be the first exam in triage. I would say that's, that's essential. So we can figure out what the plan is. What your baseline is. Right. What's your baseline is and what are we going to do? Um, and then after that, it really all depends on one, if the patient is being, is being augmented, are they getting Pitocin? Are they just rocking in spontaneous labor? Um, or do we see something concerning when watching the baby's heart rate? Those would be indications to do an exam. So if, um, if they are being medicated, uh, and again, also depending on where we're starting, right? So if it's, act, let's say it's active labor, we're past six centimeters um, and labor stalls, at, seems to stall out and we're adding Pitocin, we want to make sure that Pitocin is effective. So maybe four hours after starting would be a good time to do an exam. Um, if it's early labor, 
uh, or earlier labor, I might wait longer. I will document because we always have to document of every three to four hours, but I will then put in my notes saying we're going to, you know, wait on doing an exam because patient seems to be in early labor. And we know that early labor takes a longer period of time. So we can spread that out. Um, if patient is in spontaneous labor, um, I know, especially, and I'm going based on like a first timer, once they hit active labor and they're at least six centimeters, we can anticipate one centimeter of change per two hours. So if they're six centimeters, coming in there six centimeters, now I'm, I'm not really anticipating them being fully dilated for another eight hours. So I will wait a little bit longer if I can, you know, um, to, to do an exam you know, uh, at least four hours, maybe six hours before just to confirm that, yes, we're, you know, we're making good progress and we don't need to do anything to augment. Um, or let's see. Oh, what was my other scenario? Well, what I liked about that is, so say you give it four <laughs> hours or at six centimeters, that also, again, if we're using this for information, that in four hours later, you're like, okay, we have made what I, you know, guesstimated would be progress, but then it can also give you information saying, wow, if we haven't, then we have other, besides just upping the pit, we have other right. things like you said, pull out, maybe baby's head is asynclitic, maybe chins away from chest. And so that instead of just being like, oh, failure to progress, you can right. be active about how to help adjust baby. Cause I always went a little crazier, like, oh, baby's just too big. I'm like, is baby too big or is baby's Ugh. head just in a funky way that we just need right. to yeah. shimmy I mean, things into shape? Right. I mean, I tell people all the time, I'm like, you grow the baby, you can birth. So I'm not concerned about baby size. Now, unless mom is a uncontrolled gestational diabetic, which is a different kind of thing, then in right. that circumstance, yes, because of the gestational diabetes, uncontrolled, I should say, gestational diabetes, then the baby could possibly be too big. Right. But <laughs> generally speaking, you grow the baby, you can birth. So I'm never really concerned about, oh, baby being too big. But like you said, it's about position, which always brings me to my next thing when I tell patients, especially when they're going to be in the hospital, labor needs movement. Yep. It needs movement because you moving helps baby to move. And even if they um, decide that they want an epidural, which is totally fine, you can't get an epidural and just sit back in the bed and lay back in the bed. That baby will not be in a good position. Because, right? yeah, they're going to go to gravity and fall into more of a posterior. Right, so exactly. My, I'm a spinning baby's parent educator, so I also get very excited when we talk about this stuff because yes. <laughs> I like that you're bringing light to this because I think what happens is people get comfortable with the epidural and then they do just kind of chill out. But we still want the parent to be moving to help the baby because they also don't right. just shoot out like a gumball. They need to find their space as, as you well right. know. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, I tell, you know, I tell, you know, my patients like, look, you know, it's great. You have, let's use the epidural. Let's, you know, it's a tool. Let's use yep. it now. Now you're comfortable. Okay. Spend 30 minutes in this position. And now let's spend 30 minutes in that position. And now let's try this and let's keep moving around in the bed because the baby does need to rotate around and get into a good spot so that we can continue forward progress. 
or I guess that's a, I guess that's a redundant forward progress. <laughs> <laughs> that's progress. fine. I get what you're saying. <laughs> so, so it does seem like, you know, there's very good reasons why someone may choose to have a vaginal exam because you're getting information. What about when someone, why might someone decline a vaginal exam just in general? Have you worked with that? And then what do you do? Absolutely. So again, it depends on the the situation. I mean, you know, the parent is always the one that's in control, right? It's your body, your body, your baby, your birth, right? <laughs> Another one of my spiels, I always say. Um, so, you know, if someone does not want to, like, let's say in labor, like I said, because I don't really offer, I don't really do them in the office. So it's never really an issue in the office. Right. Um, except this, that if someone is 41 plus weeks and we're trying to encourage and then they say, no, I really don't want to do an exam. Okay, fine. We won't do an exam. Then let's think of other things that we can do. Like I said, like the acupuncture and the chiropractor and spinning babies and, you know, nipple stim and different things to get things moving that way in terms of labor. And someone doesn't want an exam. Okay. Then we don't do an exam and then we wait. Oh, I remembered the other thing that I was going to oh, say yes. about other reasons to do an exam. Uh, not just about progress, but if something funky is going on with baby's heart rate. So if we mm. notice a big drop in the baby's heart rate, that's a reason for an exam. Because sometimes when, regardless, regardless of when the last exam was, um, sometimes when, when the baby really descends quickly or there's fast dilation, um, the heart rate will drop and recover. But we, again, we don't know what the reason for the, right. for the drop is. So we're trying to figure out, is it because baby has descended, which we know then will recover, or is there something else that's, that's going on? So that would be another reason for a more frequent exam. I knew there was something else I wanted to say <laughs> about that. So it's really not very, it's a lot of gray area in, in a sense. Yeah. And also just encouraging people to have a conversation with their care provider maybe ahead of time to talk about expectations. So, because yes. I also, I remember I had a client when I was a doula, she had sexual assault trauma and we, she had a great conversation with her care provider about really limiting vaginal exams because it was traumatizing for her. And the the doctor was amazing about it. She was so gentle when she did have to do it. She talked her through everything, always got consent the whole time. Um, and so, you know, sometimes they're necessary, but again, being mindful of somebody's background of why they may or may not want it and how to go about it. So absolutely. I don't know why that popped into my head. But Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I saw, unfortunately, as, an, as a nurse, and it certainly wasn't every provider, but I saw many times where a provider would come in and say, I'm going to check you now. And right. said, I, may I? Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Let's, let's talk about like, I think this would be a good time to check because X, Y, and Z. And then yeah. we wait for the parent to say, okay, I agree with that plan or no, I don't want to do that right now. So if, let's say, so that happens where I say, you know, I think it might be a good time to do an exam because of X, Y, and Z. And then the patient says, no, I don't want to do that. Okay. I'd say they're all right, fine. You know, we'll wait a little while. Right. Or if I really do think it's a good idea for whatever reason, then I'll just say, okay, I just have to let you know that I really think that this is a good time to do it because of these reasons so that I know that I'm fully informing the patient. They have a full picture of what, right. of what the, what the clinical picture is. 
And then in turn, they can decide what they want to do, right? Because you can't make informed consent if you're not informed. Yes. But ultimately, once I've given you all of that information, again, as an autonomous adult, you in turn decide what you're going to do. So if, you know, I think that, you know, patients need to really be empowered to know that they can all, they don't have to do anything. They can always decline anything. Um, and that it is their provider's job to explain the reasons why something is a recommendation. And if they don't understand, the provider needs to explain it again in a better way. It's their job to make sure that they understand. Um, and that they're fully, it's completely reasonable then to in turn say, okay, I'm going to think about that for a few minutes. Can you give me a few minutes and come back and I'll let you know what I've decided. I love that as we start to conclude this conversation that it keeps coming back to informed consent and not just, this is what we're going to do because we started the conversation of routine checks before the onset of labor, which we're like, why? And we're continuing the conversation about informed consent throughout and just hoping that the community is hearing that again, your body, your baby, you get to make the choices. All right, we're going to take one more break. When we come back, you can go talk to your dog during this break. Yeah, so it's going to be a good time because he's barking. (laughs) We're going to take one more break. When we come back, what is one final tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new and expectant parents? We'll be right back. So what is one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new and expectant parents? So um, I think I have two. Um, I think again, to really remember that, like I said, your body, your baby, your birth, like you are the one that is in control. You make the decisions, um, and that you don't have to do anything. Um, and that, you know, these are conversations that definitely should happen, um, during prenatal care. Um, I've seen too many instances when I was working as a nurse where, you know, the patient, you know, didn't really, either they didn't have the conversation. And then when they got into labor and delivery, they found out that the doctor that they saw in the office was very different than the doctor in labor and delivery. Same person, but very different, you know, different approach. Um, And if you have these conversations ahead of time, then you get to see, do I like what my doctor, you know, is saying, or my provider is saying? do I like the vibe or am I getting pushback, you know, or are they really, are they brushing me off? Because you can always change your providers. And so that's the second part. If you don't like what you're hearing, if you are uncomfortable, switch, find the provider that's for you. There's lots of providers There's lots of doctors There's lots of midwives out there. Find the one that's going to listen to you. That makes you feel comfortable and, and, and you can, you can always switch. You don't have to stay, you know, with a provider because this is how, who you always saw and you've been coming to them for years for your GYN. That's great. But, you know, labor and delivery is, is, is different. It's not, you know, it's, I'll, I'll quote the Godfather because it's been on TV, right? It's not <laughs> personal it's business. I mean, it is personal, <laughs> but you know, you don't have to feel bad for switching. If you don't like what you're hearing, it makes you uncomfortable or you feel like, you know what, I don't know if, if I'm going to be heard when I'm in labor. The last thing you want to do when you're in labor is, is feel like you have to fight. 
Yeah, that's not the you place know, for that. It's not, not going to help right. labor should, progress. Right. It's not going to help labor progress. It's not it, it it's not the birth experience that any person should have. They should no. not have to fight. So if you get the idea that you might have to fight or your partner may have to fight to advocate for you, you know, in a way that is stressful, just find find somebody else. well let's talk about where where can people find you and your work oh yes so i um my practice is i work with a practice called uh, gaia midwives uh we are on long island so um we take care of patients in nassau and suffolk county i mean we do take care of patients that live out off Long Island or in the boroughs, in the city boroughs, but we don't do home births in the boroughs. So we only do home births on in Nassau and Suffolk County, but we also have hospital privileges at um, uh, Mount Sinai, South Nassau in Oceanside. Uh, about 85% of our patients come to us because they desire a home birth. Um, and then the other, you know, 15% just, they want a midwife, but they want a hospital setting. You know, we don't we don't care where where you deliver, just wherever you feel most comfortable. Um, so our website is GaiaMidwives.com, dot uh, and we have four um, delivering midwives in our practice. And um, so we make sure that all of our patients get to meet all of us throughout the prenatal care, because we do work on a rotating call schedule. So I don't know who will be at someone's birth, but we make sure that we take the time to really get to know our patients. Um, our first visit is always an hour and every prenatal visit after that is um, a half hour long. So we have time to do the medical stuff, the blood pressure and the fetal heart check and, you know, and all of that, but also to have time to ask questions, answer questions um, and get to know our patients and really what they are looking for in their birth experience. I have to say that was one of my favorite thing about working with a midwife, even though I will say my OB-GYN is very unique that he gives so much time. He literally like leans back, crosses arms, like what else? Like I felt very lucky Love to have it. such a great, really, I mean, I've been seeing him for years and years. He was not surprised when I'm like, but I'm not birthing with you. But most <laughs> OBs don't do that. And that is something I appreciate about my midwife. She, you know, she's just like checking in. How are you? What is going on? So that's one yeah. of my favorite things about midwives. And you also teach classes for city births, correct? Yes. And I teach classes. At, I teach uh, childbirth ed at city births. Yes. And I think, are you also one of the childbirth ed teachers that will be teaching at prenatal yoga center? Uh, it all depends on the dates, but I mean, I said yes. So that's just wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Some of our community might actually be taking classes with the very knowledgeable you. That is oh, wonderful. Thank you. Well, that would be lovely. I would love to meet them. <laughs> well, thank you, Kara, for this great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, too. I did as well. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.